From the Captain's Quarters podcast is brought to you by Captain Coop's Beard Company for all of your beard needs, whether it's beard oils, beard balms, or if you are a sophisticated beardo, our beard butters, plus a pretty badass line of apparel. Check out CaptainCoops.com. Remember to use the promo code PODCAST10 and get 10% off your order at CaptainCoops.com. The show is also brought to you by Everything Hemp LLC. They have those D8 products in stock and ready to ship Delta 8 next level stuff. Plus a full line of CBD tinctures, whether you need concentrates, topicals, even products for your pets. EverythingHempLLC.com or give them a jingle and tell them Cooper sent you to call 715-532-4367. 715-532-4367 for Everything Hemp LLC. Uh, super excited to be joined on the episode today from the Captain's Quarters podcast. Uh, Drew Plotkin is here. Drew and I, I started stalking. That sounds really aggressive, but I started following Drew on Instagram uh, last year. And uh, and again, as the premise of the show is a lot about those who live life on their own terms and kind of uh, sail their own ships and raise their own flags, Drew definitely falls into that category. So, uh, Drew, welcome to the program. Thank you for sa- taking some time out there on the uh, on the West Coast yeah, the West Coast, the left coast, whatever you want to call it. It's uh, it's the coast. And you had a very nice way of putting it there. That was the nicest way anyone ever described that uh, I've never been very good at following the rules. But you said it in a way that gave it a little bit of class. And I appreciate that. That was well done. I got to I got to write that down next time I describe <laughs> myself to someone. I'll sound like uh, a, l- a little bit. I was going to say more dignified. I don't think that would fly. But a little <laughs> less uh, a little less. Uh, of what I do sound like <laughs> a little less aggressive and that, but that's, it's okay. No, I think there is a, there's a certain vibe I think in, in, in social media can be used for uh, for good and for evil uh, yeah. in many aspects. But I think there is, um, and you kind of encompass that with, uh, with the stuff that you post and the stories that you tell on there. And, and it falls into, I think that brand category as well with, with Derm dude, which we'll talk about, but there is like, go out and take pictures of stuff, go out and, 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 if, with your kids, enjoy things with your kids and show it off. If you get a new tattoo, show it off. If you travel somewhere really beautiful, show it off. That can be a good thing, and some people use it as a, a, a for, for evil. But I think there's the fine line between truly going out and doing the things that you want to do and embracing life to the fullest. It's the way we all should be living, but for some, it's very it's a very difficult shell to crack when it comes to uh, you know the facade of social media. Well, and, and I think I, I think that's a good point, Coop. And then the other thing is that I think even ourselves, we, we, we waver and we have good days and bad days and good windows and bad windows. And I, you know, I'm certainly guilty of it where there's, you know, I agree with everything you said about social media, the pros and cons. And, you know, it's kind of like a saints and sinners or the devil you don't know, but also has a lot of positivity. Um, but I think even ourselves, I know myself, um, you know, I deliberately when you when you say that to yourself, you tend to be more aware, um, at least, you know, if you're not aware of something, you know, if you're sitting out there and, and say, you know, oh, there's never anything on Facebook that's not 100% the gospel and truth. Right. Well, you know, we have nowhere to go with that. Um, but but if, you, if you at least kind of keep yourself in check, I think you tend to be more um, smart and balanced about it. And then when you start going the wrong direction a little bit, you pull yourself back in more or you're more open when one of your friends hits you over the head and says, hey, you sleeping more on you're like oh, that's a good point uh, but you said something in the lead-up which was funny it's probably not related to anything other than the fact or a couple of dudes like covered in tattoos talking but when you said you post a new tattoo on social media 
And uh, I certainly do that. I'm, I'm sure you do that. And, you know, we also have a little uh, YouTube series uh, called Think, Ink, and Drink mm. uh, as well, which was just a passion project, but it's kind of got some traction now where we go around and interview tattoo artists, people getting tattoos, and obviously then we tell the story. So there's the think part, which is the story part, the ink part, the tattoo part. And then, of course, there's the drink part, which is, that just felt like a whole lot of fun to throw in where we'd have something <laughs> drink per episode. Uh, so I was the other day, my seven year old, my six year old son actually uh, had you know seen one of my newer tattoos. And, and he said, Daddy, you know, for my seventh birthday, that's when I'll be old enough to have a tattoo, right? <laughs> and I just, you know, rather than answer, I was kind of hoping that, that the question just magically would go back in his mouth or something, but he's, he's six, man. And they're persistent. So he was like, he's following me around the house. He's like, and if I, he's like, daddy, daddy, you know, it's rude to not answer a question, daddy. <laughs> he wasn't taking, so I had to have that discussion with him and, uh, you know, but, uh, yeah, otherwise, uh, otherwise there is a lot of good out there. <laughs> I feel like six is that age. So my, my, my one and only son, he's 11 now, but I think it was right in that, that six, seven, uh, age bracket when he did start to ask questions about like well there there have been times i think just as him growing up like grabbing some markers and being like oh i'm just gonna i want to be just like dad and i'm gonna put you know all these things on my arms you're like that's i love your artistic talent son but you know you have to go to class tomorrow and you know the teardrop under your eye probably is a little bit aggressive but could put you in detention just a little bit. <laughs> They'll ask questions and then I got to answer them. And, and we know how that goes with me and in, in, in the school district. But it was that inqui- that inquisitive mind at, at at six and seven where they're like, yeah, I'm, I feel like I could probably do that now. I, yeah. This is I, well, I, I got, I got three daughters, too. And that's yeah. separately, you know, uh, I don't want to, you know, uh, have people like, you know, calling in and screaming at you for, <laughs> you know, having an idiot like me on your on your show. But you do have a, a bit of a different perspective with boys and girls and you know only in in the sense of you know like i'll I'll be much quicker with my son like you don't hit girls don't ever hit but then while the like his twin sisters are like pouncing on him and beating the crap out of him and you know he'll be like oh come on boy toughen up a little bit (laughs) 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 you know so there are kind of little things like that so what then when i like really trip out is like when i'll see my 14 year old doing like what you said your 11 year old son does where i'll come in her room if she even grants me an audience because she's 14 so mm. it goes you know it goes friends ipad or ipad friends then it goes her dog um and then, 17 <laughs> other things, and then dad um but if i get granted an audience and i walk in she won't even look up now as she's like coloring in her legs like her leg will be up she'll be filling in all these different designs and it won't even be like well she tried to hide it where like a few years ago at least i'd be like what's that she's like nothing and now she's like um it's like I'm doing like the sleeve on my leg in a marker so I can see what I like. And I'm like, <laughs> glad I dropped by. Okay. Glad I got to see you. Again. I'll schedule, I'll schedule my next visit for some time in three to four days. I'll give you plenty right. of advance warning. I'll put it on your e-calendar. Yeah. yeah that's, that's the trip. Uh, it's, it's dad life though, man. But I want, I want to talk about your, uh, your venture. Cause uh, I know you're out in LA now, but you're not, you're not originally a Cali boy. Are you from, uh, you're from out, East is that correct? I started out in New Jersey, mm-hmm. so uh, my my claim to fame is I was born in Freehold, New Jersey, which was uh, the same hometown as Bruce Springsteen, whose music I did not get into till much later in life, and then uh, became a, a big uh, fan in parallel. So um, yeah, Freehold, New Jersey. I think that's the only reason it's on the map is that that's <laughs> where he was born, and then made it out to uh, 
uh, Arizona uh, after high school. Um, and, you know, when people would say, why'd you pick Arizona State? And everyone jokes and says, because of the weather and the girls and tons of beer. I really wasn't joking. I mean, it just was that simple. Um, <laughs> ASU, baby. Sun Devils. Yeah. I'm not an overly complicated individual. It was that simple. <laughs> and uh, made it out there and spent about six and a half years to get a four-year degree in uh, journalism and communications. Now, part of it is it was a really big school. And, uh, you know, my dorm was bigger than my uh, high school, uh, in my entire high school. My freshman English class had like 1,700 kids. It was a big 40, 50,000. So, so, you know, yeah. most people don't graduate in four years. They take four and a half, sometimes five when you get a course. I think the extra year and a half it took me definitely had to do with, you know, nothing to do at school <laughs> <laughs> extracurriculars extracurricular nothing good um but you know uh so graduated with it but i did i did really uh enjoy journalism and graduated with a degree in journalism and ended up actually starting down that path and uh worked for a tv news station uh, out in reno nevada and did some tv news producing and um you know uh, ultimately it was about a year or so into it and I uh, realized I was making about six bucks an hour and I was producing the primetime evening news and I was sharing a house with two housemates where uh, my bathroom didn't even have a shower. So if I wanted to shower, I had to go to the local gym. So I worked out a lot those days because I always had to shower. And, uh, and I just was like, man, this, this isn't what I thought TV news would be like. Like, you know, I was thinking like the Today Show and you know, Good Morning America. And, and I'm like in Reno making like six bucks an hour. And man, I'm like, I don't see a path there. So. That's when I kind of packed up the U-Haul and headed towards California. Now, I understand that like journalism and especially being a part of TV, like this was something that you had in you before you ended up at, you know, for the appropriately named reasons of going to ASU. This was something that was already in your DNA as a path you wanted to take. Like when you were in high school, you were a part of doing some cool stuff. I, I remember reading a story about you uh, interviewing a, a, a human who was on death row. Uh, in high school, yeah. which is... Yeah, that comes up a lot, and it's always like a fun party game or a trivia game. We're here at, at work at our at our team here. Sometimes they'll do a thing on team-building days of, you know, here's a fact about someone who was it, and, you know, so the funny fact or reality is, and truthfully, this is true, I've actually been on death row twice. Now, depending on how I say it or who I'm saying it to, um, people will just assume I was there as a resident uh, <laughs> you know, during the legal process. Um, and I didn't always have lots of tattoos or a big beer. I didn't come out of the womb this way. You didn't either. You no, know? No. I think usually if you come out of the womb covered in tattoos and a beard, I think they call social services. Right. Have a whole different they, try to, they try to send you back, and it's, it's a challenge. <laughs> uh, they may have tried that with me regardless, <laughs> but uh, uh, I was here to stay. But, no, so I, I always had a um, just an interesting, inquisitive mind about, you know, I don't want the storytelling, but certain types of stories. I always, I always was drawn to stories that I thought weren't going to otherwise be told. Like if 50 people were telling the same story, you know, it's, it's why I can't watch the news regardless of whether it's, you know, Fox or NBC or CNN. Or, it's all junk to me because everyone's saying the same thing just with a different twist and different right. angle on it. Like, who cares? There's nothing new. There's not investigative journal. Like I was, you know, more interested in seeing some undercover documentary that mm. some interesting freaking person did and just packed up and went off and told this story without any sense of politics or who's on first or what's on second. So for me, I was in, I think uh, my junior year of high school 
and I had seen a, uh, a, a story, it must have been in a magazine or something, when we still had magazines. Yeah, I remember that. <laughs> and, and, yeah, and there was a story about this young girl in Indiana named Paula Cooper at the time, who was like a young girl on death row uh, that they were going to execute for, for murder. And I didn't, you know, read it and feel like heartbroken for her in the sense of, um, you know, I mean, her crime was brutal. She acknowledged it. She killed an, uh, an older person. It was, it was brutal and horrible and robbed that person's family of, of, you know, that individual. But there were parts of reading that story that were pretty shocking to me and felt pretty voiceless as far as a 16, 17-year-old, you know, kid in the legal system at that level. Um, and, you know, reading certain things about, you know, how few people or how few, how few countries, if any, were actually executing um, juveniles. And whenever you're like up there on the list and, you're, and your neighbors in good standing on a list are like Iran and, you know, I think Syria at the time, it always makes you stop and think, okay, United States, Iran, Syria, um, I don't know mm. if we want to be like on the same list that the, here's the only yeah. three people. That, so um, I just started looking into it and I, I don't know why, but I was part of a, a group that, you know, had access to audiovisual uh, in the school. Um, wasn't like a, a wealthy school by any means. We didn't like really have a track. The track team would run around the parking lot. We didn't have a football field, so it was mostly away games, stuff like that. Mm. Uh, but for whatever reason, we had like a public access broadcast cable station that had been donated to the school. So I kind of got hooked up in that and started taking classes in it and learning video and all these different things. And it really created the ability to tell stories. And just one day someone said, you know, a teacher in a, in a kind of open creative type of course I was in my junior year said, you know, if you can do anything or whatever for a project this year, independent, what would it be? And I, I remember I said, I want to interview a, a juvenile on death row. And, you know, like the other 19 kids, you know, looked at me like, you know, this is why we didn't like that guy. I would never <laughs> want to hear this guy. I mean, he's, you know, this was a, a, a class for like allegedly gifted smart kids, of which I wasn't. I mean, all these kids spoke five, six languages, played different instruments to, you know, I barely get by just with English and I still don't get most of the words right. So, I mean, I think there's always this big thing of how he sneak in here. So when I threw that out and the guy was like, all right, how are you going to do that? And I'm like, I'm just going to send letters and, and start calling every prison around the country and see if any kid on death row will speak to me. And, you know, there's no internet, no computer. And I started sending out letters and making calls to prisons and had no real idea. Uh, I think it just became part of my, my obsessive compulsiveness of, when I start something, I just don't know how to stop. Right. And I think, you know, I just come home and part of my daily life and routine, whatever it was, was, okay, send out two letters to different inmates on death row, call two different prisons, try to get a hold of them. And then one day, uh, a guy, I got a phone call from prison in Florida, and it was a warden named Bob McMaster. I don't know, I'll never forget the name. And he said, you know, you've been sending letters so-and-so, and this particular inmate says he'll come interview with you. Can you be here next week and whatever? I was like, and, uh, you know, flew down to Florida, went with a teacher of mine at the time. We brought a little video camera, and it was kind of surreal. We went to Stark Prison uh, right outside of Tallahassee, Florida. You go on to death row, where at the time there was about 600 uh, people who were, you know, condemned inmates and went by the same electric chair that Ted Bundy had been uh, cooked in. And uh, it's pretty real stuff, man. You know, you're a 16-year-old kid at the time with a big New Jersey mullet and acne all over my face. And, you know, went out and, you know, got my first sports coat ever. I don't know if I've worn one since. And trying to be all professional. And, uh, 
you know, you're going in and they start marking your body with this ultraviolet light, which I didn't realize why. But the reason why is you're going into condemned area with 600 people who have nothing to live for. So if one of them grabs you and rips off all your clothes and tries to put the clothes on and sneak out as you, they swipe the body and see if there's like an ultraviolet light. So, you know, none of these, these are all kind of like real things. And I'm sitting in a room and then like 15 minutes later, some dude comes in, they open the door and he's sitting here like three feet across from me at a table and there was no, no glass, no wall, <laughs> nothing. <laughs> and then they go out and they close the door and it's just me and him in the camera. And I'm like, hmm. Hmm. it's been good if cell phones were invented earlier. You think? <laughs> and you know, I mean, he had handcuffs on, but that was the extent of it. I mean, he was like three feet from me, you know, I got pictures and stuff. And we're like, and we talked, man, we just talked and, and rolled and rolled and rolled and talked for like I don't know, an hour, two hours, something. And it was, pretty fucking crazy yeah how much perspective even at that age does that give you i mean hearing hearing his story and it sounds like i mean how how close in age were you to the inmate at, the, at this time was it was it a fairly close window it was i mean I, I you know he was what they would consider a juvenile i think to this day is when you committed the crime right so i was a juvenile in the sense that i was 16 almost 17 so by law at that time i was a juvenile i think each state varies it but i think for the most part i think 16 still a juvenile most states i don't know um he i think at the time was like 19 or 20. he had he had committed his crime when he was 17 uh, according to court records which made him a juvenile per se but we were still pretty close in age to the point yeah. where you know arguably it's not unusual i was like a month from my 17th birthday yeah. so it's not unusual for like a 17 year old and a 19 20 year old to be hanging out or be you know peers or contemporaries other other than the fact that he'd killed people and was you know scheduled to die or sentenced to die and i was you know doing this for a high school project and uh you know but yeah, yeah perspective for sure i mean if that's you know, um, it, it absolutely, and we spoke about that, I remember it all these years later was, you know, and in my mind as much as part of it's what you ask someone, but then the part of it is when you have a chance to decompress afterwards and you're just, because there's times where you're doing something like that or an interview and you'd, you'd like to just stop and take it in, but then you realize someone else got to watch this interview and they don't want to see an idiot like me just sitting there. <laughs> Ponder. You got to kind of keep it going, you know? <laughs> now we got so we can do this, you and I, where it's like, it at least implies that we're thinking. It's a stoic thing, too. Like, hmm. that's right. That idea was coming to my mind. But there, there is that, when you're having that kind of conversation, and especially something that, even to this day, which you're a little bit older than 16, uh, almost 17 now, but, but things that, does that stick with you? I mean, when, when you start to just, even just because of the differences in in upbringing, in, in areas, in just opportunity, whatever those differences are. Here we have a, a human being who's 19 years old on death row for a, you know, a, a crime committed when you're 17. I, I made some really fucked up choices when I was 17. I made some really fucked up choices when I was in my mid-20s, too. But I was gonna say I made some fucked up ones probably last night. I was I mean, say, it doesn't end. About, you know, about an hour ago, I was you know I was things were iffy at best. But is that does that does that moment kind of maybe in the back of your mind just stick with you as you as you kind of progress through life as like man I have all of this opportunity I have this you know this chance to do really cool things and to go and experience cool things and does that 
do those stories, you know, having that moment, does that resonate with you as you have progressed through life? It, it did. It really had a, you know, I don't, I don't want to use the word profound just because maybe it's too big of a word. I don't know to tie to one thing, but it absolutely had a much bigger long-term ongoing impact in my life overall than, than the meaning of, you know, the juvenile death penalty, which is, I think, important and significant. Yeah. The fact of the matter is it doesn't impact that many people. And the United States actually doesn't really carry out executions at this point on, well, it doesn't really carry out a ton of them anyway, unless you're in Texas. So uh, you really shouldn't kill someone if you're in Texas. No. This is a rule of thumb. Look at the statistics, you know, <laughs> go somewhere like California where you're going to die of old age on death row. <laughs> um, Probably have know. a documentary made about you, you know. Cool yeah, stuff. most likely, and about a thousand female stalkers who want to marry you. But Texas, you're fucked. Um, <laughs> but uh, no, it, it, where it did on a few ways was it really gave me this. Um, I don't want to say fire or something about it was that that part of again telling stories or being around something that other people weren't around or seeing or experiencing. It made me feel more in tuned, more aware. So. There was definitely the, the part of, I think it's helpful for everyone um, to be in situations where you have to kick yourself in the ass and say, you know, man, look at this shitbag hand this person's been dealt. Right. And that's the truth of the matter is, I mean, for the most part, outside of like the rare, you know, Ted Bundy's or the true psychopaths that, you have, you know, some of these people who had a charmed life, a great mommy and daddy, and they, you know, never had malnutrition, no one ever beat them, there's no drugs in their early childhood, uh, and there's something in their DNA or their twisted mind or their id um, that just turns them into psychopathic, you know, child molesting killers and rapists and all that. You know, that's one side of it. And, you know, I, I run that, that part of it never really fascinated me or I never had any interest in like interviewing those people. And my mindset on that is, you know, if the victim's family doesn't get them and kill them, you know, on their own and you know, dispose of them as quickly as possible in the legal process, especially if they touched a kid or raped a woman or something right. to that effect. Um, but for me, there definitely was, as I read this individual's file, um, preparing for the case, the public file in their own background. And it's important to say, you know, it's not a bleeding heart, liberal, um, forgetting about the victims. That never has left my mind um, on anything that I've done with, uh, you know, interviews with people uh, who have, have made some really fucked up, horrible choices in their life that hurt other people. It doesn't leave my mind what they've done, who the other victims are. And I don't think there's a free pass or, you know, any of that. But um, there's a reason you have mitigating and aggravating factors. And when, when I when I would read into it and then started to read into other cases, but starting with his case, yeah, for sure, you're reading about a kid who was, I think, off the top of my head, you know, one of 11, beaten routinely, if not by his mother, by his mother's drunk, drugged up boyfriend. Yeah. Um, no food for him and his brother. And this wasn't, you know, made up stuff. This was all documented for years in the record from social. And, and that's where you know, your mind goes back and that's when you think of like what you and I were talking about of is, all right, you know, I've got my own gripes, I've got my own issues and we all do about things that could have been different or whatever, but no, nothing remotely like that in a million years happened. And and how would I have been if, if that was the world I grew up in? Again, it doesn't absolve it. It doesn't say, okay, if you had a violent, shitty childhood, if you were abused and you have the right to go out and kill someone. I'm not saying that in any way. I'm just saying that 
it makes you be more cognizant and aware and say, well, th there probably is at least a different path of, of you know, and, and it does matter um, the circumstances. And, and, you know, the court system, you know, exists in that sense, has, has opportunities for those things to be presented. Right. Um, obviously, a 17-year-old kid in utter poverty uh, is not exactly going to get the OJ Dream Team uh, defending them. So there's all of those issues. And then as I dug into the death penalty overall and became fairly fascinated with the topic and tons of research, and I spoke to everyone over the next few years on every side. I spoke to parents whose children had been murdered um, and really heard their perspective. I spoke to people uh, whose kids were on death row for killing someone and what their fear was losing someone who was going to be executed. And, and I really was able to finally walk away with what I thought was a pretty informed, educated perspective on it overall. And I found the more I did that, the less emotional I was and the more my opinions on the topic overall were just based in, in fact. And I think when you get into a lot of these types of topics, they're so polarizing, very rarely based on information and real facts. It's based on, you know, gut feeling, emotion and things like that. So it did open up a lot of uh, eyes uh, or, or interests in my head. And it did kind of start a path of throughout my life, even up until now, that if I see something interesting or fascinating that I just want to go to or be near and, and tell the story, you know, I'll, I'll do it. And it never has had anything to do with uh, getting paid for it or money or not. I mean, my, my living has always been uh, very different than some of the things that, uh, that end up on my podcast or my YouTube channel. Right. Yeah, and I think there's... You mentioned awareness a lot, and I think that's, you know, an underlying. It's an underlying thing when you talk about people who live life on their own terms. Is is being fully aware? Is remembering not only the experiences that you that you went through or that you, you know, had a feeling for, but it's keeping keeping that sense of awareness in everyday life. It's like awareness of. It has really nothing. It has little to do with that moment in time, but it is like. I understand and I am aware of the surroundings that I am, I am currently in and I am blessed to have the things I have and I have a need to understand because there's an understanding and awareness as well. I have a need to understand that story in its full complexity, yeah. not one sided, not the other side, but all encompassing, like, tell me this side, tell me this side of the story. And then I can, in my awareness, make my, my personal judgment on how I feel about things and how I will, whether it's adapt your life or adapt the choices that you, you make on your own. And we learned don't kill people in Texas. You That's know? a really good point at the end again. <laughs> yeah, not in Texas. But, you know, where a lot of it went, if you fast forward through the different experiences like that, and again, that was, you know, I was on death row once more, again, not as a resident, but uh, when I worked in uh, as a TV news journalist for a profession in my early 20s, was interviewing uh, someone who this person was executed. It was a he was a young kid in Reno, Nevada, underage and responsible for a horrific, horrific killing, which he did. Um, horrible circumstances, and I remember that was really weird and trippy because after interviewing him a short while later, maybe a few months, he, he was put to death in their gas chamber. Um, and my really close friend who was working in TV news there was one of the witnesses who went and watched it wow. um, and explained to me what that was like uh, watching, you know, a human being and especially someone who had been a, a kid who, you know, um, again, doesn't change the horrificness of the crime. But um, those were limited to my, my, my thing. And it makes for a good, you know, uh, 
again, when you meet someone and, you know, or someone's talking with you and they say, oh, yeah, I've been on death row twice. And they each step back a little bit. You know, like, um, but, but a lot of my experiences of going around the world and storytelling or being around interesting people. I mean, if, you, if you've seen my, my podcast, you know, you know, really good long-term friend of mine is a retired mafia hitman mm. um, who I met and became really good friends with after he was out of prison. And, um, and, and you know, we had some interesting adventures together. Um, he doesn't kill people anymore. Um, but, um, you meet so many different people, interesting stories, traveling around the world. You know, I was in a village a few years ago in the border of Ethiopia, Kenya, Sudan, and we were out there with like the tribal chief and the villagers who, you know, all they do is walk around with old AKs and machetes and they can cut you to pieces in a second. If they don't like you there, there's no police, no military coming for you. I was there with a good buddy of mine who's a, who's a dentist, doctor, and we found out as we got up to the village that three uh, doctors had been grabbed and killed the day before, aid workers, because the Sudanese didn't like that the aid workers were helping the Kenyans because they were all killing each other. So they grabbed a couple of doctors from Cuba who were up there and killed them. Um, so that made it easy for me because every time we'd walk around outside in the village, I kept calling my friend, hey, doctor, come here, doctor. <laughs> like, not the doctor, that's the doctor. I, I've served no value. Not the guy. You know? uh, but but the takeaway, Coop, for me uh, was throughout life developing a personal philosophy of, of the victims and survivors. <sighs> and when I say that, you know, some people totally get it. And, you know, that's cool. And some people kind of flip you off and I have no issue with that. It doesn't really phase me um, because some people take it as an insult. But I, I'm speaking to myself as much as everyone else, meaning that you know, victim or survivor, I, I do believe it comes down to those two categories in the simplest form. You can get more micro and break it up in a million different ways. But what happens to you isn't necessarily your fault or you're doing an audit. If someone is the victim of sexual abuse, you know, uh, a child who's attacked, a woman who's attacked, think bad things happen to guys. That's not what I'm talking about. You know, those people are obviously victims of, of horrible crimes and things uh, and, and didn't do anything to deserve them. What, what I'm talking about is what you do after you've been through your shit. And yeah. for the most part, if you're my age or your age, you've been through some shit. And if you haven't been, then God bless you. You're the luckiest fucking person I ever met. Maybe go play the lottery. Um, everyone's got a reason to feel sorry for himself. Right. Everyone's got a reason to cry yourself to sleep, to want a tummy rub. And, you know, I've been at that place before in my life over times. And, and that's where I say it's about victims and survivors is what do you do for yourself? Do you take the hardships that you've had and let it drive you forward? Or does it just swallow you up and, and you go into a constant state of self-pity and feeling sorry for yourself and excuses of, you know, I'm a total fuck up because this happened to me. I'm a total shitbag because this person was a shitbag to me. And, and I think that's the biggest thing for me is, is, you know, part of my life's experiences and some of the people I've been fortunate to be around, good and bad, have, have helped shape my mindset of them. I'm responsible for my own fucking choices, good and bad. Everybody else is for their own not everyone believes that but it's a much more comfortable easy uh comforting way for me to live life uh, with that mindset no 100 percent. i think that there's uh, and i don't want to say in this day and age but there is that victim mentality has now become it, it's almost its own whatever the opposite of support group is because if you are if you are a victim then other victims will be like 
well, we're, it's okay. We're going to be victims together. We're, you know, the world fucked us. You know, we didn't get our fair shake because of this happened to you. This happened to me. Uh, we didn't, you know, we didn't have this opportunity because somebody else, something else, the weather was bad that day. There's, but they, they grouped together and there's the, there's the crab in the bucket. And you've heard the crabs in the bucket analogy before. Like if you, like one crab tries to escape the bucket, all the other crabs will try to pull that crab back down. So if you have a bucket full of crabs that are all victims and you have one that's like, you know, I'm going to own my shit. I'm going to own the things that, that I did. And this is, you know, it's maybe I didn't have a hand in it, but it's on me to be able to, to step out of this bucket full of crabs because I'm sure it sucks down there. But the other crabs by nature will try to grab the escaping crab and bring him back into the bucket. Like, no, no, like you can't, you can't leave. And that has become, I think, a real, a real microscope on society because it's become trendy to be the victim, to be like, oh, well, my life sucks and there's just nothing I can do about it. But the survivor stories, and that's where this live life on your own terms comes from, is like, it, it's not all, you know, wine and roses and the, the red carpets are laid out. And here, here, my journey to greatness was paved in gold. No, it's like crawling through the shit, experiencing life in ways that you never thought you would, making the choice to get over the bullshit, owning yeah. it. And then you wake up one day and you're like, like, I am where I am because of the decisions that I made. The choices yeah. that I made, you know, the, did, did I decide to, if I'm overweight, it's, be, it's not because fucking McDonald's. It's not their yeah. fault. I mean, they, sure, I could fall into the, oh, yeah, well, I mean, it's the dollar menu, bro. Like, get me on that shit. But it's. Yeah, they should have, they should have printed bigger on the wrapper that said, you know, 100,000 <laughs> calories or, or, or 72,000 grams of fat. They should have made that print bigger before I ate 17 of them. Um, <laughs> if they would have done that, I. Yeah, maybe I probably still would have, but I don't know. But, you know, and, and there's a big difference, too, Coop, between what we're speaking about, which is self-accountability yeah. and holding yourself accountable and not feeling sorry for yourself and being proactive. And and I want to be, you know, specific that, I, I mean, I do believe in empathy. And I think a lot of times uh, we can, certainly as, as a society, but individuals, uh, and I've been in that boat on and off at times. I try not to be, but you know, empathy is real, and I, I think it's it's a it's a good thing to have, and it's a, a good worthy thing to share and offer and support other people. I do, yeah. but I think like anything else, it can be a drug where um, you know it can make you feel better, and then you can move on and be enough to help get you back up off your ass on your feet. You know, great. We all could use that and benefit from yeah. it at times, and and I feel sad for you know people who don't get enough of it when they should, but the drug part of it becomes where you just become a lifelong victim and you just need empathy 24 seven, 365 from every fucking walk of life. And you've now gone from someone who, you know, should have a little bit of empathy to just being a, a, a waste bag of, you know, you right. can't tie your own shoes without someone telling you good job yeah. or, or it wasn't your fault that your shoe became untied. It really wasn't your fault. You know, all right. It was the fucking shoelace fairy that did it. You know? <laughs> Bad bastard. Yeah. So, my kid, my kid runs into the, the, the shoelace fairy all the time, and I'm like, what? And then he's like, I don't even care anymore. I'm not even going to fucking die. If I fall, I kid, When I was a kid, I had a pretty, you know, stereotypical East Coast New York father, you know, pretty, you know, hard-ass type of guy, but, you know, meant well, did the best he could, and it's a whole different story for another day. But um, uh, one thing that helped me later in life, I didn't love it at the time, but I believe it really, and I, I you know, shared it myself, is... He, he was never a fan of the word if, you know, he's a very self-made guy, never yeah. went to college and 
you know, definitely built anything he had, you know, truly with his own bare hands, uh, business-wise and life-wise and supporting his family. And, you know, if to him was just, you know, it's an excuse word. It's a, it's a word that pussies use to, you know, yeah. just, you know, make, and it didn't matter. Let's say, you know, if, if hey, are you starting in the game, such and such? Well, I would be if, then, you know, or, hey, you know, how is your grade? Well, I got a, a, a C plus or a B minus. I would have gotten a higher grade if, and he would just cut you off. And he would yeah. say, you know, he'd hear if, he'd say, if, 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 he'd say, if my grandmother had balls, she'd be my grandfather. That's what if means to me. And it wasn't that he was even coming down hard that you didn't right. get a great grade. I mean, he wasn't exactly supportive um, or happy about it, but it was the excuse part that would piss him off the most. Um, and really, um, that's what he tried to, you know, drive out of, of me at an early age. And, and he did a good job of it because I thought it was a good perspective. And, you know, that's something that I've carried with me through my life. I look at with my own kids within reason or so little. I mean, there's only... So you know, I said to my little one this morning, well, if the tooth fairy wanted to give you more money last night, <laughs> maybe. Um, but, you know, with uh, your, your, your coworkers, your staff, your employees, your team, uh, your personal relationships in life, who you want to hang out with, who you don't, you know, I look at those things, you know, who, who's a constant excuse maker for yeah. themselves, for others. It's, it's just as bad. You know, you have people who will make excuses for other people who haven't even asked them to make an excuse for them, but it's in their fucking DNA that, you know, that nobody ever does anything wrong. It can't, it all has to be utopia. Oh, people fuck up every day. I do, but just own it and move the fuck out and don't do it again. hundred percent. You know, I want to get back to your story because I think there's, there's, there's some of this that resonates in that, you know, being in Reno, understanding your, what you are doing, the, the, the job that you're in, the amount you're being paid for it. There are people who are like, well, I went to ASU. I did all the things. Uh, this was, you know, journalism. I mean, I'm in the field. Like, there is, there's people who would be content. Like, well, someday it'll be more than six bucks an hour. Someday it'll be 10. Someday it'll be 12. Someday I'll work my way up to it. But you're, you're kind of running the show. But to be able to say, buy Reno and make that move out to California, I mean, that is another one of those you know, ballsy life moves that that people are presented with on a daily basis, not a daily basis, but they'll have that opportunity in life to be like, hey, like, you realize that this isn't great and you're not happy doing what you're doing. You could go off on it and just fucking shoot shoot from the hip and, and hope things work out and take a chance in life. Or you can stay in the box and, you know, eventually you'll probably get you know, a, a better, a better pay and you'll get maybe some benefits. Maybe they'll, uh, you know, let you use the company van once in a while, but the move from, from Reno to California, especially from a guy who came from, you know, Bruce Springsteen's hometown in New Jersey. I mean, is, is there a, was ASU like the, the conduit that was the, the between, like, I, I got to see a shit ton of people now LA, here I come. I think it was a few things. I think one is that um, I think going the other direction geographically, <laughs> believe it or not, would have felt like going backwards to me. Yeah. Um, and that's just me and my mindset. I mean, that's the, probably a silly way. I'm sure there's people who, you know, moved from the East Coast to the Midwest to the West Coast and gone back to the East Coast and killed it and gotten an amazing job, you know, whatever it might be, or launched big things. And, but just for me mentally, being as unstructured as I was, like I didn't have a path at that point when I left the early years of TV news, which was kind of my first like real job. It's what I went to school for. So, you know, at that point it was, it was like a, 
shit now what you know 24 25 years old and a degree you could wipe your ass with it because I'm not doing journalism and any of those things uh, in my mindset so I think for me it was more one I'm gonna keep going forward and forward to me meant continuing uh, out which was California and then the water so uh, if, if you probably could have you know driven all the way to Hawaii maybe I would have and kept going but <laughs> I wanted to go as far as I can go to kind of carve out whatever my my destiny was going to be and and there was a rush i mean there was something about loading up a, a, a broken ass cheap little u-haul thing with a bunch of crap from your storage unit and, yeah. and driving towards you know california and you know coming up through bakersfield and the grapevine where if you've ever driven it and you get like a big slant you start to go up this incline and Man, it was like summer, and just my my old car, man. I'm like, this sucker ain't gonna make it. That's where it ends, <laughs> and man. it did. It, it got up, and we coasted <laughs> down. Uh, but it was there was something, um, something, you know, I don't want to call it romantic, but something oddly adventurous about it. Um, you know, you, you know, we're so not adventurous in the world we live in at this point, just because of the modern conveniences, and that's great. I take advantage of them. Don't get me wrong. I don't want to go home on a horse and carriage later. I'd rather, you know, get in my, my GMC truck and, and have my music and heated seats for my ass. Uh, but <laughs> you would um, you, you would need heated seats in uh, in, in California. Uh, coming from Wisconsin, um, I'm like, oh, you heated seats, huh? That's pretty. Oh yeah. Do you have cool? My, my, my blood is thin. <laughs> <laughs> Got that California blood now. But um, it, it is. It was. A, it's a sense of adventure. It's a sense of a little bit of. I don't want to say recklessness because it didn't feel that way. Because I wasn't coming out to Cali to party or fuck around in right. my mind. I was coming out to Cali to, to figure it out and find myself like what I wanted to do. Um, I had no fucking clue. I really didn't. But it was. It was in my mind at least. If you're looking to start over and you're very driven, like you have big dreams, even if you don't know what they are, um, it was like as simple as, well, would you go to California or would you go to Topeka, Kansas? Okay, I think California. It's something, whether it's the movies, the whatever, um, you know, I knew a couple of people who lived out there um, at least, so I was able to crash on a few couches and, you know, bounce around a little bit. A couple of my friends were, at the time, nicknaming me uh, Cato Kalen because <laughs> it had been a few years after the OJ thing when the Cato Kalen was the house guest and, you know, every other time when a friend would call me and he'd say, where are you at? I'm like, oh, I'm at this freaking house in Beverly Hills and it's incredible. Oh, I'm up in the valley and I'm, just, I'm in the pool and, you know, I, I kind of did find a, a way for a first month or two of, of some, some really comfortable, enjoyable couch surfing and you can see where people get fond of that but I, I i've always been afraid of um letting myself get too comfortable yeah um it's kind of an internal thing like i've had situations that were really comfortable at times um you know uh, bartending jobs where i was like making more money than most grown-ups you know other things and uh it's just one of those things where um i didn't want to get into that rut so um an opportunity came up uh to manage an apartment building in a in a real total shithole part of town at the time and the trade-off was there was no pay but you got to live for free and you would go around and collect the rents and you know basic stuff like change a light bulb pick up trash whatever but if something major broken happened you'd call it in and they'd send repair people but you're the, you know you're the 24 7 you know mr furley on call at the apartments you know and um so that was you know a big thing for me as well like hey man i'm leaving the pool uh, i'm leaving the, the barbecue i'm leaving all this stuff and 
and I'm going to go like live in this shithole where in the uh, complex department that I managed, you know, he had like old bullet holes and shit from because yeah. it was in, like an old gang area that, you know, wasn't like daily shootings on the streets there by any means, but it was not a safe area. It was on, you know, uh, you definitely had some gang activity. Uh, mm. I remember I had a guy one time who was, I think, seven or eight days late with rent. And, you know, California would have these rules, as most states do, like after 72 hours, you could after a day you can call after 72 hours you stick a notice on the door and then something after some window of time you're legally allowed to open the door and and go in and do it uh, whatever and i remember finally opening the door knocking going in and dude big armchair and the dude was like dead and big crack pipe in his in his lap and he'd had a heart attack a few days several from the smell of it quite a while ago um so he, he definitely was not handing in the rent anytime soon um <laughs> no sir and uh, so, you know, this was not like, you know, uh, Pent Avenue or uh, Penthouse Apartments by any right. means, but but it was, you know, it was free rent and it enabled me to start, you know, being aware of, all right, I got that taken care of. My overhead's non-existent at this point now and I could live in a comfortable-ish, safe place, you know, um, on to, you know, what the hell to do, you know? So when you, when you have that, I mean... That obviously that big sense of relief, like okay, that box is 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 checked. I like how you slowly hesitate when you're like safe, safe is safe, it's safeish. But like when you have that taken care of, like how, what is the process like? Because obviously it's not a, a smooth road into oh now tomorrow I start an ag agency and uh, I'm going to do <laughs> awesome things. There's there's going to be struggles. There's going to be things. How much overcoming did it take to get from? that point to you know find your way to I, now i understand kind of what i want to do where i want to be how much time how much time elapses between that position and going okay i think i i think i got a bead on the direction i want my life to go in yeah uh you know it wasn't a light bulb moment per se of i mean i was like quite a few years into owning my agency and we were doing pretty well when i finally um started to think in terms of um all right I guess I do have a career and a real job and, you know, it's like 20 people work for me and work with me. And it was, it was one of those things, but my mindset was more, um, what am I going to do? You know, I've always had like a build it and they'll come type mentality. Yeah. So my, my next thing was, I mean, my mind was so open to anything, as long as it was something I was excited and passionate about. And that upon success, if I really, had big success or knocked it out of the park, I wanted to know that I could, you know, do well financially. I didn't want, I never was into guarantees. I didn't need like a minimum guarantee of something. I wanted to bet on myself, um, it, whatever it might be. So I, I was really like wide open, open-minded. I've always, you know, if someone says you can't do something or that's a dumb idea or why would you do that? That's almost a guaranteed way that would fire me up to do it. Just, right. you know, to stick it up their ass anyway. But that, that was personal motivation. So I was, um, in my uh, little apartment and uh you know one of the things that i had happened when i was back in reno is i was, always, I was kind of a big guy uh, usually and by then i was you know you'd switch out chairs like someone would have the morning newscast you'd have the evening and it wasn't like adjustable there was no ergonomics and right. you know crappy old chairs like 25 years and i didn't know how to type so i'd be like this like <laughs> typing these you know and i'd really jacked my neck bad like so bad that by the time i was leaving reno i was like you know, I, I was not 
like walking upright. I was in agony and pain and seeing a lot of different pain specialists and, you know, living on painkillers, not even when people do them for fun and are doing booze. Like I was right. like painkiller. I could like get out of bed and move. And I was a young kid. So when I did get out to California, oddly enough, um, I uh, went to a doctor uh, in Santa Monica and he was a family doctor, but it was like, I had insurance at the time I didn't, it was covered by, and I went to the guy and he looked at my file and he's like, I'm a family doctor, man. You've been to the Mayo Clinic. You've been to you know, University of Adorino Physical Therapy. You've been to 15 chiropractors. You've, you've done, I'm a, you know, I'm a family doctor. What can I do? I'm like, I don't know. I'm just, I'm still in pain. I'm 24, 25. It just, I don't want to, he goes, have you ever tried, you know, yoga? I'm like, what? You know, it's like Santa Monica. He goes, I'm like, what, people are like chanting and all, like 25 <laughs> years ago. And he goes, well, that's the perception. He goes, but there's a yoga class on the corner down the street. Um, drive by. He goes, there's like lines around the corner, this, this and that. People get in great shape. And he goes, and there's like some really pretty girls in there. And I, the last part definitely sold me on it. So like that, <laughs> I, I was, you know, before I went back to uh, where I was managing the apartment, I was passing by this yoga place. Uh, and there was like a line around the corner that looked like, I mean, it, it freaking looked like there was a concert about to go on for a sellout show or something. It was just absolutely insane. And I realized it was for this this dude's yoga class. And then I saw on the line, like people I recognized from like, you know, MTV and shit and movies. Yeah. You know, I remember like Seal, the singer was online and, you know, David Duchovny and uh, back then, the guy who ended up playing Ari on uh, Entourage, Jeremy Piven, who mm. was just getting started. But this, so it was like all actors and models and all these freaking amazing women. And I'm like, I think yoga sounds like fun. Yeah, I mean, so I could, I could. So I went inside and did the class, and it was like the most ass-kicking, brutal thing. It, I didn't know what to expect, but it definitely was not like a lot of slow chanting and inner peace. I mean, it was like an ass-kicking, you know, power yoga type thing, and. So that night I was back in my little apartment, uh, had a little rabbit ears on the TV and I saw what was called an infomercial, which I didn't know what the hell it was back then, but it was for Billy Blank's Tybo, which mm -hmm. kind of then all of a sudden was like sweeping the nation. Like the dude who was like a boxer kickboxing yep. and it became like an iconic infomercial of that, that window of time. And I was like, well, man, that's on every channel. I only had like four channels, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, but I'm like, that, that's, that's pretty damn cool. Like this, this yoga thing that could be that big, you know, cause you know, so it's just, again, it was that why, I don't know, had I ever done anything No, in a million years, you know? So the next day I just went to the public library in Santa Monica cause I didn't have a computer or laptop or anything. And, uh, and I took a, what I could find was a, a personal management contract sample, like a template. I never wanted to be a manager of talent. I, I still don't. I don't really like people that much. <laughs> the ass, you know? um, so I, uh, but I, I made a photocopy of that and I went across the street and introduced myself to the yoga guru guy. It was like most yoga people, pretty trippy out there, mother, you know, but, um, and we started chatting, did a couple of, you know, grab a bite to eat after class. I would take the class for a couple of weeks and, you know, a couple of things happened within a couple of weeks, like my neck and back pain had dramatically improved, which, you know, speaks to just the general concept of not all fitness needs to be lifting crazy heavy weights right. or carrying bolts up a hill. It's, you know, stretching, um, circulation, oxygenation, all that stuff to this day is a big part of uh, what, what's helpful for me, along with the other stuff. Um, but so that, there was that. And then after a couple of weeks, we kind of developed a pretty good rapport and we ended up, you know, doing a deal where, you know, I signed him to be his manager and I would get, I think 10% of 
anything that we made together. And I was going to do an infomercial with him and blah, blah, blah. And I spent the next two, three years, literally, I would uh, have different jobs at night. I would bartend in Hollywood during the daytime. I was a telemarketer for a investment publication, still managing apartment building and not paying rent. And and then I would use a good chunk of my money to promote him. I'd make up press kits. I would knock on doors. Now, again, it's, think of it like if you're me, and I, didn't, I wasn't covered in tattoos at the time, but, you know, you're literally knocking on doors. You're, like, walking yeah. in trying to, like, bullshit your way into a meeting with someone to not have them call the police or throw you out. <laughs> um, you know, you still don't have, like, email communication, so you're sending out these big packets of information and stuff on a regular basis, and each of these packets at Kinko's, would cost, you know, 130 bucks, right. you know, of color stuff. And and again, it was that whole thing again that um, I didn't know how to get there. I had no idea. Um, but I but I knew that if I just kept going forward and didn't go backwards, you know, I, I didn't I wasn't really worried about going forward off a cliff. I was just worried about don't ever stop going forward. And, you know, it, it's it's I'd like to say overnight it was magical, but it wasn't. It took about two, three years. And I finally found a group that had, you know, probably took a meeting with me to shut me the fuck up. I don't know. And, uh, but I was pretty passionate about him and the pro project and they signed on to do the deal and they put a lot of money behind it. And they, they, you know, at the time I didn't know anything about agencies or creating content or any of that. I'd written some news, you yeah. know? Um, and, uh, so one of the things that, uh, the deal I put together was really stupid. I didn't have money for a lawyer. So, uh, even after the thing got done, I really didn't make money off of it because it was a moronic contract that I, you know, downloaded from the library that day as far as <laughs> protecting me. Where the one thing that was smart that I did is I wrote in that uh, the guy's manager would get to go uh, anywhere on the shoots, including if it was outside the state. So they ended up, uh, the investors planning this big cross country uh, video tour where they were going to film this guy. How do you make the whole world 25 years ago think that yoga is mainstream? Well, you send them to Virginia, you send them to the right. Midwest, all over the South. And you showed like everyday folks doing yoga in places that you wouldn't think. And it's not chanting and it's not weird. And it's like fit and healthy and weight loss, yoga weight loss, which nobody was talking about. So right. um, that was like a period of time on and off. That was like a six, seven month process of shoots, editing. And I sat there and I watched every bit of it. And and that's when the light bulb for me went off as far as th this is what I want to be doing. I want to be packaging the whole thing. I want to be building out the brand. I want to be putting together the story. I want to be, uh, you know, putting together products that have stories behind them. Um, and I really don't want to be, like, managing people. Because uh, <laughs> you don't like people. We don't like people. You know, it's a whole different thing. I mean, I do like some people, but ironically throughout my, my my career and a lot of the bigger successes we had involved a lot of you know celebrities and directing a lot of celebrities and athletes and you know i'm thankful for all of that and it, it all worked out well and and you know some are great some are a pain in the ass it's like everyday life you know yeah. people say what are celebrities like and like it's like normal people uh, some people are great some people are a pain in the ass it really doesn't make a difference always what they do for a living um but um a part of that in life still when you think you're not, you know, you own your own company, you own your own agency, you're directing, you're making some money. Finally, you still realize that a lot of life ends up, you know, babysitting right. <laughs> grownups at times. But we did that first infomercial for yoga. Um, and, and I was pretty hooked on that. So it, that's when I had a, at least a direction of, I want to put together these things. I didn't know 
where to go, how to get hired. That was my next, you know, kind of caper, so to say. But that that's really what grounded it, started it, made me realize there is something that I would love to do that has an infinite amount of opportunity. People are always buying stuff. Um, and then, uh, you know, little by little, you know, you, you get your first job. You know, the very first paying job I got doing that, I was supposed to do some before and after pictures for an acne brand. And, you know, can you do this? Yeah. And you're can a photographer. Oh, yeah, I can do that. And, you know, what type of camera do you use? Oh, you're going to love it. Wait till I get there and show you. I know a fucking camera. <laughs> wow. On the way to shoot, I stopped at a mall in, in California and I bought a digital camera with a floppy disk. It was like one of those Sony's with a floppy disk. It just come out. It's like 800 bucks. And I was like three credit cards splitting up to 800 bucks. On three, and I had like 60 bucks cash and just covered it. And, <laughs> You know, but that was like my first job and I think it paid a few grand and I was like, man, I'm getting paid. I'm producing stuff. I'm I'm doing stuff. And, you know, one thing gets another, gets another. And, you know, all of a sudden you go from yourself at working out of your apartment uh, to where you have someone who's helping you part time a little bit. And then you have two people who are helping you because it's a little bit too much. Or you want someone to help with the phone. So you actually look like you're not an apartment manager posing as a producer and, you know, uh, you have these steps that you don't even realize till it happens, but your first office, even if it's temporary space where it's month to month, it's your own office and yeah. has a real phone and a real placard on the door. And I mean, I can honestly say that, you know, unless I stop and think about it, it really probably wasn't until, you know, years and years later where people would come to my, the larger studios we had, we've been having a lot of success. And I think at some points, you know, I had 35 or employees, maybe 40 at, at the most, which was not really my favorite thing to do and, and didn't really want to stay there that long. But that's when, when people would come in and maybe comment and, and, and wow, this, that's when you would stop and go back and be like, man, I, I don't remember any of those now. And I, I can recall them now. Right. And this led to this and then this went to that. And, but I, I really wasn't stopping. I was never... I've never been big on stopping and celebrating or patting yourself on the back. And I think there's something that is good about, you know, stop and smell the roses that, you know, certainly I can learn from and try to as I get older and realize that. But I think the bigger risk that I was always more certain I wanted to avoid was the early celebration, you know, the end zone dance, the idiots who spike the ball on the two yard line, <laughs> don't get the, and, you know, so my mantra on that's just always been that there's plenty of time to celebrate afterwards once you're successful and the game's over. But uh, I've never been big about um, early celebrations or taking too much stock in in achievements, um, you know, certainly of myself. Uh, I have a much easier time and a more enjoyable time doing it for other people around me that I can, you know, but for myself, I, I just kind of keep going forward. So. Make sure you tune in for part two of our conversation with the Derm Dude, Drew Plotkin. In the meantime, thank you for listening. Make sure you are subscribing on whichever podcast platform you are listening on, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Audible, YouTube, wherever. Leave us a five-star rating. And the most beneficial thing you can do for this program is to share it with your friends, your family, your pets, everybody. And a kind thank you for doing just that. 